Welcome to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast where seeing things differently inspires limitless possibilities. This podcast is being brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Limitless was created in order to inform, educate, entertain, and share stories from within the blind and partially sighted community in order to show the world that the opportunities for those who are blind or partially sighted are truly limitless. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to your host, the executive director and founder of Blind Beginnings, Sean Marcelet. Welcome back to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. I'm your host, Sean Marcelet. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We have another exciting episode. Today, we are talking about echolocation. And I have a couple of guests joining me from Acoustic Athletics to help uh, talk through this topic and tell us a little bit about their organization. I would like to welcome Brian Bushway and Thomas Izdebski. Perfect. Did I get that right? Okay. Yeah, fantastic, Sean. <laughs> Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. I already like the lead. Limitless, right off the top. Gives, <laughs> good, gives me good uh, sentiment of where we're going to take this conversation today. Because exactly. that's one of the things that I found in discovering at the location, that there is this question of what do we feel our capacity is limited by? More importantly, how are people living in limitless ways? And those stories are always cool and exciting. Oh, yes. Thank you. Wow. You're just jumping right in. Well, before we get into that, do you guys want to both introduce yourself? Brian, if you can tell us a little bit about your vision as well, um, but kind of your who you are and your role within Acoustic Athletics. Yeah. Uh, my name is, is, is Brian Bushway and Tom... And I have have started up this this new venture over the last couple of years, pretty organically from conversations that happened with people. And Acoustic Athletics sort of specifically started focusing on perceptual development skills for professional athletes. Um, a lot of our friends who were athletes, they started hearing a lot of the work that I had done over the last decade. Uh, teaching echolocation and they were thinking wow brian you're getting these amazing stories and in, in, in games from all of these students i think there's something that we could all benefit from and that started a whole conversation that wow echolocation is for everybody and there's a bigger conversation what echolocation leads into but i discovered it when i was a teenager at the age of 14 I went about six months, went from functional vision to now having no light perception, only to discover that my brain would adapt. And I was walking down the eighth grade hallway, and there was a, a post holding up the ceiling, open space, another post. I, I, I thought I was seeing these. I, I could move, I could interact with the objects. But to me, it created this what I thought was vision, but I'd close my eyes and they would still be there. And then I ended up meeting my mentor, Daniel, Daniel Kish, who's a pioneer and, you know, started the first like teaching curriculum. And he put it in the context. He's like, Brian, what you're doing, you're using echolocation. You're hearing sound reflect off of objects in the human brain can image acoustically and that's what got me on this whole life journey of wait a second what like this is curious and then i started learning developing playing sports and just sort of eventually you with echolocation in in our team it took me into the sports of, of of mountain biking where i became almost certainly the world's best totally blind mountain biker and we got off the tandem bike and we modified the bike, putting a zip tie over the rim into the spokes and to make a constant noise. We could develop good sound localization skills to get that information. Then with active echolocation, you can click and tell like, am I closer to the right side of the trail, closer to the left side of the trail. And when that happened in such a short period of time within let's say four, four ish years, 
I went from thinking I would be living the rest of my life at home with my parents to now I'm out on a mountain bike trail. This shattered all preconceived ideas about what I thought was possible and started getting these bigger notions of limitlessness. And wow, we actually have bigger capacities than, than we currently know. And then that just fast forward into my introduction with Tom in college. And we've just been fascinated in studying these. And he has his own interactions with, with, with working out in like blindfold sports, but more just in general, why it's important to increase our sensory capacity. That's awesome. I'm, I'm big smiles over here. Okay. I, I have so many questions, but um, Thomas, why don't you introduce yourself now? How did you connect with Brian? How did, what, what's your, what do you bring to this? You know, I've, uh, I connected with Brian nearly 20 years ago in college. Uh, he was roommates with one of my friends from high school and we, uh, we hit it off right away. Uh, you know, on, on several different topics, we, uh, we were just able to, to have these very long extended discussions uh, we both uh, played instruments at the time. Geez, I haven't played my saxophone in years, but but at the time, you know, I was bringing my saxophone to California, and we were just jamming together. Uh, gosh, I, I even remember playing percussion on a on a water on a water jug, while uh, <laughs> while we were jamming out one time. But you know, I was I was really fascinated by um, by by Brian and his abilities. You know, um, it, it really shattered a lot of the conceptions and understandings that I had about blindness. Uh, you know, I was already working somewhat in the medical field as a, as a you know, 19-year-old when I met Brian, um, more on the surgery side of things. You know, I, I wanted to be a surgeon at the time, so I was doing a lot of work in cardiovascular and thoracic surgery and transplant surgery. So, so I had like, a, a, you know, some conceptualization of blindness, I guess, whatever you had learned from the periphery of being involved in that system. But um you know, very little. Seeing how Brian was able to live his life, however, though, was so fascinating to me um, and continues to be. You know, uh, the, the, the fact that across the room he could throw a tennis ball and hit me, I, I thought was, was uh, you know, that struck me as very cool initially. I mean, I can think back to, to, to that time, uh, you know, almost 20 years ago. Then, you know, running through the parking lot at Ralph's. I mean, I was even running in like a serpentine fashion and, and, and Brian was keeping up with me. Pretty interesting. Uh, so, so I've always been fascinated by uh, uh, how incredibly he's able to interact with his environment, how creatively uh, he's able to manage it. And so, you know, I've been fascinated anytime I've had the opportunity to spread this idea of echolocation into the blind community. That's what we've done, you know, and over the years, um, I continued to do this. And we had a discussion maybe maybe a year and a half ago with Hockey Canada. You know, we were interested in introducing echolocation to the Canadian blind hockey team. Mm. And, you know, this was one of the kind of the discussions that catalyzed acoustic athletics and where we are today. It came from a number of different sources, but I think this was uh, certainly a key one. You know, during this discussion with Hockey Canada uh, and about introducing echolocation to their blind hockey team, there was some comment made, you know, once we were talking about 360 degree perception, and knowing where your uh, opponent might be, for example, when you're on a breakaway, there was a comment made that um, basically like, just don't teach this to the Oilers. You know, they, 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 uh, one of the people on the phone didn't like the Edmonton Oilers. And so they said, you know, this is all great. Just don't teach it to the team I don't like. And this was kind of a eureka moment for us. We we're like, huh, you know, we've never thought of uh, adapting the curriculum for sighted professional athletes. And then as, as we started to really like dig, dig into it, you know, I've, I've been looking at athletes and, and human performance for, for a long time, ever since kind of early college. And what we've realized is it's, it's very clear that athletes on the highest levels, they're deficient in the understanding of some of the key elements and processes of how their bodies work. Even something as simple as breathing. You know, there, there's uh, many books I read on breathing very early on in college. And still to this day, anytime I turn on a professional sport in my head, I, I'm just pointing to the people who don't know how to breathe in this professional sport. And it's kind of a, a head scratcher. You know, you think to yourself like, wow, 
these individuals could be so much more efficient if they understood the way their bodies work a little bit better. And so, you know, that's what really uh, has taken me on this journey with Brian into uh, exploration of perceptual development, um, helping individuals achieve things that they never even conceived were possible. Yes. Okay. So I actually met Brian um, many years ago, I think 2006, maybe 2005. I can't remember exactly. Uh, I was working for the CNIB at the time and I heard about Daniel Kish and I invited him to Vancouver to come and do an echolocation workshop with the kids and families I was working with. And I also asked him to come to teach me how to ride a bike. And uh, he brought Brian along for the CNIB workshop. So Brian, you traveled all over the world with Daniel. Um, well, I guess first, can you explain how you how you teach echolocation? And, and echolocation, you sort of briefly described it, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit, but basically seeing with sound, right? Yeah, so we're into this interesting area where we're gonna have to think about words in a bigger way because there's some new concepts that we've all sort of missed that help, I think, explain all this. Okay. So here's my first caveat. We're going to talk about it in a very theoretical way, but guess what? Any kid, adult, any person I have ever worked with, everybody can hear the difference between and not. And that's my hand coming in front of my face. It's really blocking the sound, so we'll call that a sound shadow. But if anyone were to go and face a wall and then compare that to the opposite open area, you start teaching your brain a new language, the language of sound, the language of echoes. So our brain images in two ways. Imaging happens inside our head. Most people experience vision as it takes them something outside of themselves. But vision is being constructed inside the head. Most people with low vision issues have had suffered traumatic brain injury. So their visual processing is just scattered, disorganized, and it's very difficult. And it's a really loud sense for them to try to figure out how to use effectively. So you're trying to do a lot through a very limited sense when we have all of these other senses. So the brain images in two ways, whether we send it patterns of light, vision, or whether we send it patterns of sound, sonar, or echolocation, or flash sonar, depending on where you are in the world. And so the brain is so clever that we've all been born with the ability to see in the dark. We've just grown up with a dependency on the light switch. That's cool. And, yeah. And so <laughs> it's really, it's really like it's, but it's simple. It's sound reflects off of objects in the human brain can image and imaging, having a three dimensional spatial understanding of, of what one is, is, is hearing. But it moves on from just hearing the brain. And this is what the last 20 years of neuroplasticity has shown us. And this is when originally when we were in Canada with Mel, Mel Goodall and his team that did out of London, Ontario, Canada, I recall that they, the original MRI scans showed that the object recognition parts of the brain are activated by an echo. So it's been measured. Mm -hmm. And then it was there from all of those measurements. And now we go, oh, hop. Human beings have been echolocating since the beginning of time. And probably ancient man was so much more adapted using sounds when we travel, lived in caves. There's stories of people who live in dense jungles in Africa who are they're the guards the centuries and they're developing echolocation skills to perceive the threat that may loom in the perceived quote-unquote darkness but there is no dark and light if you can see with sound concept becomes less important so it's just interesting that now that everybody had this ability we could see the brain light up different blood flow 
And it happens not at first. This is neuroplasticity. It takes time, practice, patience, perseverance for the brain to adapt for the sound to then become images. You mentioned that when you went, when you first went blind, you could hear the poles as you were walking down. And I, it's funny because when I met Daniel for the first time, I was like, well, I mean, I can hear objects on the side, like a parked car at night when I, I was, I couldn't see anything in the dark. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and he's like, well, yeah, you've probably been using it all your life. So can you talk mm-hmm. about sort of the passive sonar that we sort of automatically yeah. have and then enhancing that? We all know the differences if someone is talking on the phone in a bathroom. Mm versus another room it's all unspoken it kind of happens in the subconscious so that awareness is passive echolocation the ambient noise is in a room a hum of a refrigerator people passing by outside and traveling inside that sound is all still reflecting off of the surfaces around us and the brain is sort of imaging them Mm-hmm. So, but in a, it'd be in like a, like a less clear way. And, and then there's active echolocation where you would use an, an active sonar signal. You would have an intention. Commonly, we've realized the best is, a, is an active tongue click. That sound reflects off of things behind me, things in front of me, all around it. And over time, the brain learns to recognize the unique sound signatures of all of the different objects or things. But we have to teach the brain to do this. So part of how does this get taught? Well, every sighted person forgot how they learned how to see. Mm. So we're so lucky now that we have a textbook out there that helps point a direction and picture of like, hey, these things are possible, then it becomes the art form of teaching to get people engaged to want to move. Movement is the number one primary factor to get the brain to integrate. Movement, everyone has to move. You cannot read a book and be able to do this. This is, yeah, maybe because you already could passively. But if you want to grow the brain, you have to move. And... So, yeah, so the other interesting analogy is passive versus active. Well, the visual analogy is this. Sighted people have central vision. They have peripheral vision. They're using both at different times for different reasons. Central vision is used for more clarity, detail in the environment. That could be analogous of the active sonar signal, the tongue click, the hand clap. The strategic cane tap, tap, tap. And you can even image off other people's noises too. You could, another person, when, you know, part of the strategy was the real goal about, let's say, from a visually impaired traveler, from my experience and just like observations and even from my own personal life freedoms and traveling the world, what we had to become really good at was familiarizing ourselves with the unknown. Every visually impaired person knows, yeah, it all works when things are organized. It's been set up. You're at home. You don't need your cane. Mm -hmm. It's when we start expanding our comfort zone and moving into the unknown, when we need stronger perception skills because the life may not be organized in our conceptual way of thinking about it. We're going to have to engage our perception, listen well, use our, use our cane. One of my favorite things with the cane is our students from uh, Poole, England. He called his cane his long arm. <laughs> and it makes more perceptual sense because because now back to sports, they've done studies with hockey players. And the understanding is that the brain sees through the extension of the tool, the hockey stick. So there's no difference between the end of a hockey stick and the end of their hand. Mm. 
wow, that's how cool our canes are. They become long arms. They become this like strategic way of perceiving the environment. It's a performance tool. I know I am better with it. I've climbed mountains. I mean, yeah, there's plenty of other visually impaired people that climb mountains and do interesting things. But for me and my group, all of a sudden we want to go on a hike, uh, a white cane, I can climb up that mountain. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't have it, I would be so much more dependent on other people and less comfortable and not feel as free. So it's this whole combination, like echolocation is this like new ability that our ears can actually do this, but it starts, but what it does is when we teach it, it activates the brain to turn on, to go, aha, there's more information here that to pay attention to. It could be a sense of feel, but even balance, proprioceptive, the vestibular system is a huge important component to develop in people if you're interested in moving. Mm-hmm. So there's layers, right? So there's layers because our body, like we, we as humans tend to construct our reality through whatever the dominant sense is. And for the world, the dominant sense is vision. And so the brain quickly, efficiently says, oh, everything must have been done through vision. When really it's been a collection of all of these different sensory inputs coming together to, to give us the freedom to move in with the intention we want. So uh, one of the, I mean, I had the privilege of working a little bit with Daniel or observing him working with some young children. And um, a lot of the work begins with just like carrying your child from the bathroom to the bedroom and singing a song in both rooms and hearing the difference. Or he had the parents crawl on the floor yeah. with a blindfold on to feel, sense, hear the difference. You know, if you're navigating the living room where there's a coffee table and you're at the yeah. same height as that coffee table versus standing up where it feels like it's open space, like how yeah. does it sound for the child? Like some of that stuff I just found so fascinating. Well, well, yeah, you know, the, the, the moving from room to room is where the children and all of us are learning how to develop the sound from a bathroom versus mm. a big cathedral. Mm-hmm. And then you're absolutely correct. The parents load. Now they have the perspective of what is important and their kid is perceptually paying attention to, right? Most, most visually impaired people live under the constant pressure of feeling like they're missing out on something because the sighted world is causing to demand them attention to it. Mm. But there's a world of, there's a beautiful world of acoustic images, right? And if you, as the parent are able to like verbalize what that muffled sound sounds like between the couch and the coffee table, you're giving them a vocabulary for those, that, those, whatever you just said, acoustic images, right? Yeah. And the parent, it's amazing because the parent one day is going to take the kid to the Grand Canyon, but that little space between the couch and the coffee table to a little kid, it's a Grand Canyon. Mm. And it has some of the same sound principles that, you know, the, the, the one made of different properties does, you know, the the real thing. So you're right. And and that's what I think a lot of people too, I've seen, especially professionally over the years, a lot of other teachers or parents get insecure because they feel like they're not going to dedicate the time to be a master of this. Guess what? We're teachers. We're parents. We don't have to become experts and masters ourselves if we're good at creating spaces for learning. And if you have some basic understanding of how the other human being is is interacting, there's a lot of value in that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how... Oh, I just want to go so many different directions. You can go in any direction <laughs> you want. You're a free person. Okay. How do you teach this then to people who are sighted? Well, obviously that's what you're doing with acoustic athletics, right? Yeah. So we're teaching, yes, we're teaching sound principles, but there's a whole skill set 
of auditory development, sound localization, sound discrimination. Not, not echolocation is one aspect of a layer, but echolocation is in a way an umbrella skill because you can hear an echo, you can image an echo and hear a sound at the same time. Like a, a sound, different sound source yeah. and an echo. There, so there's subtleties of layers of environment that's, that, that's here. So how do, So the real reason why we use the blindfold with sighted people is if we this all comes back to what we're learning and knowing and the new future is exploring the potential of neuroplasticity like neurons are the things in our heads that are connecting our brain wires and plastic plasticity it's a little bit more flexible than we ever thought so how do you get your brain to be in a state of, 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 of better learning quicker, almost priming the brain. You put a human in a new environment. They're challenged, right? Back to this idea of the unknown. You wanna grow, you put yourself in increasingly challenging situations. And we know with the neuroplasticity science, it requires a new environment. The blindfold is really mislabeled. It really should be called like an awareness fold. <laughs> or something because it's bringing like because all of a sudden you put this on and you change the environment like you an change. awareness enhancer yes nice one you know we, we think of it as like uh, uh yeah you're taking something away but you're really enhancing all of the other senses yeah you know i was uh just talking with a friend of mine a few days ago and he said that his son does um, like speed listening on his podcasts, you know, and he listens mm -hmm. to them at like two, 2.5 X. Yep. You know, that's, that's significantly faster than I can listen to it, but something he's trained up to, you know, and that's like, um, mm -hmm. th th there's, there's so many different sources of data and types of data that come into your ear that, you know, once you train, you can certainly discriminate and uh, process them accordingly. You know, furthermore, you know, there's, there's all the other, you know, non-auditory sensory enhancements that you get as well. And we're finding this in, 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 there's so many other areas to go, but to finish the story of like auditory development, there is a, a recent study last month, NPR talked about it, that they, college kids started listening at one and a half times faster. And they all had the same comprehension mm -hmm. from listening. So it was learned. So college students who are 2020, they got so much material to blow through that th they benefited from listening faster and still had the comparison. But for everyone else who's, who's visually impaired or blind, our listening skills have even an advantage because we're doing it 24 seven. So we can mm -hmm. even become better. But that was also a skill I had to learn. I first time I was using screen readers, it was slow. I, it felt awkward. Mm -hmm. And then I get a little more proficient. And then the, in the next month, you crank up the speed by one. Mm -hmm. And then you just force yourself to do it. And, it. and it focuses the brain, the concentration. A lot of times blindness is not just a physical thing psychological noise can be blinding emotional things that have happened in our past just the relationships and the remember all of this is still happening in learning under a social atmosphere and that's part of us as teachers and people can we create social atmospheres of belief to allow these new skills to develop and form oh okay i have to say something about that because when I met Daniel, I, you know, he talked about his no limits philosophy, which blind beginnings adopted, like just loved that. But he talked about going through an airport without assistance. And I actually, at the time, didn't even think blind people were allowed to not get assistance in an airport. <laughs> like I just <laughs> thought it was a thing we had to do and I hated it. I had always hated it because it just, 
Oh, I don't know. I feel like airport staff need extra training that they do not receive on how to assist people who are blind, but that's another topic. But um, yeah, my mind bent in half when he said, no, I just ask which, which way. And then I walk in that direction until I can't any longer. And then I ask somebody else which way. And, you know, so like just learning that there was a totally blind person who was doing this thing that I just mm-hmm. believed was impossible. Mm-hmm. And I, I've, I've gotten off a plane and just followed the people and not had assistance since then. And it's the freedom, but like, it was my mind telling me that's not possible. So Sean, you know, I want to mention this because I try to see myself as like a non-biased person. Even though Brian surprises me once in a while, I still like, after getting surprised a couple of times, I, I try to remove all barriers and just say, whatever, it's open. But I still get surprised. You know, we're, we're, on, we're on a call the other day with an individual in Australia. He's the only individual in the world. His name is Ben Felton. He's 100% blind, no light perception. And he has a license, a racing license from MotoGP. He races against fully sighted motorcycle uh, racers. And he's going, what? To, you know, <laughs> 200 miles an hour around this track. Oh my God. And he's finishing in the top 10. Wow. Yeah. You know, uh, again, I, tr- I try to remove well, the, question, the, question, the, the, the question. The question of why peak me is like, and this has been the whole life of like meeting Daniel, right? We all want to get better find mm. people who are doing amazing things and just go get close yeah. proximity people breed opportunity and so we're like how is he doing this is the question i want to know like yeah is it just this amazing phenomenon well what are the tricks to his trade and how is he doing it and uh, i mean did you get an answer because i feel like motorcycles are so loud it's very distorting like i don't know how echolocation yeah, no he's he, he's certainly not using echolocation, echolocation at all no, okay he's using different perceptual skills wow yeah that's cool. what i said that's so cool that's what i said uh you know and later this year they're filming a documentary when i say they i'm not sure who it is but somebody is filming a documentary about him and two other blind racers and they're going to be down at the uh i believe at the kennedy space center in florida and there's going to be three blind guys racing supercars against each other yeah that's awesome but here's but here's an answering the question he has a really controlled environment Mm -hmm. it's a racetrack and he's using lidar technology gps He's using a lot. He's not. He's depending on a lot of supplementary information to do it. Right. But but that's what's freeing because exactly you said it'd be so loud to have to do it with echoes mm-hmm. that that. But he adapted and creatively found another way to become the fastest. And he's competitive. He's competing. He's yeah, better. He's competing. He, He's, he's better, better than most. Than, yeah, he's better than most. In a field of 30, he finishes like seven, you know. Wow. Uh, there's 23 people who are looking up at this blind guy saying, what the, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm curious because you guys mentioned uh, Vancouver. I don't know much about Vancouver and British Columbia. Do you get a lot of snow up there? No, not in Vancouver. We we get mostly rain. We get snow maybe twice a year. Got it. And it doesn't stick around very long, thankfully, because that's kind of a, a pain to navigate in. I was thinking, you know, yeah, you mentioned that. And I was thinking about uh, a program I saw years ago on the Discovery Channel about, uh, you know, the snowplow drivers. And maybe, you know, it may have been Canada, but it may as well have been Alaska. Um, driving and, and clearing the roads in completely whiteout conditions. Mm. And, you know, those guys don't see the road at all. You know, that, right. was, that was one of the comments that I took away from the, from the program. They, they have so many screens and things that they're looking at, sensors. They're not looking through their windshield at all when they're operating these huge machines on the side of mountains and stuff. It's, it's quite, a, quite interesting. And so, sure, it's you a- know. This speaks speaks to the point that all of this supplementary information is awesome, 
but we can't depend on it when it comes to living and being creative in real dynamic time. Because what happens if one of those things fails? What happens if someone puts something there and doesn't tell you? Mm. So this is an issue of concept versus perception. The concept of where we think we are, our mental map, may be very different than what our senses are telling us. So we have to check in with both and have a conversation between, did, 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 was I wrapped up in a conversation and accidentally shift uh, you know, 45 degrees. Oh, you know, all we, you know, we're, they, we're a lot of the students, they're, they're, they're enthusiastic and they're rocking and they're moving and they forget all the little micro moments. Yeah, or so did my phone die and my LiDAR is gone. And that, you know, that really reminds me of a quote and then I'll let you uh, uh, intro yeah. here. But uh, I, read, I read in a book here recently, it says, being skillful and creative comes through establishing a direct connection with the environment around us, not pulling away from it by becoming automatic and reflexive in our movements. Being an expert is not defined by what you have in your head, but rather how effectively you relate to the world around you. It's interesting you're talking about, um, yeah, what if that technology fails? I've been thinking about, you know, self-driving cars, which would be great. But like, what about when you get out of the car and you find your way to the building and you're not, you don't really know where the car's parked in relation to the building. Yeah. Like that's where you still need that echolocation or that ability to perceive your environment, right? Yeah. And it goes even bigger than this. I... I was I got the great privilege to go on a service project to Malawi, Africa, where we're building a school uh, for for a village. This village has no running water; it has no electricity. Most of these kids who grow up there will probably live their whole lives never leaving ten miles from their house. And there's there's thousands and thousands of people there that like live. That's a whole it's a whole country of a similar situation. I was glad I had developed all of my skills with a cane and a clever brain to figure that out. Because if I was waiting for any of that technology, that supplementary information, it just, it wouldn't happen. It would have slowed me down. I would have been less of a servant. And that was one of the things that why did I want to increase my perceptual awareness? I, I, I wanted, because blindness, it seemed, or disability, it's why we have all awareness and inclusion, because everyone feels insecure about it at times, or there's biases, and there's this and that. And the most successful thing that I ever found to change a prejudice or a negative stereotype was to find creative ways to serve the people around me. And in order to be that person, I had to increase and in a sense be independent, but I wasn't being independent to stand on my own island. I was, I was, I needed skills to serve. Like the, my favorite lesson with, with any student is, hey, hosting, anytime a guest comes over, young Johnny, bring a glass of water. Right. It's just because I found myself in a social trap, this weird social dynamic of every time I walk into a room, and still to this day, it, it's still a real thing. Most people who don't know me, I'm always put in a care receiver role. Yes. Versus the caregiver role. And I, and, I, and I had to psychologically come up with, with a way of dealing with this. And the only action I could have was to find ways to serve others. And, and that is what ended up taking me all the way to Malawi, where I was so grateful and, and was able to do more quicker we were teaching the uh, like, you know four periods of a hundred in a room, no desks. It's just a cement brick building. Hundred and twenty fourth graders, me and my other counterpart, mm -hmm. and but we also had you know interpreters, local local Malawians who were college students who just know it because so we're really w trying to work through the cultural lens, so we're not the silly Westerns tripping all over ourselves, and, but. It was awesome, but that was like, to me, oh my gosh, 
What if the electricity goes out? What are we going to do? None of this technology is going to work that everyone is dependent upon. It's useful. It's great when it's there. But there's another level of life when you have real trust in what your other senses can't perceive. Most of the time I feel insecure is because of the social atmosphere. Yes. Yes. Not not what my own skills. I'm yeah. really curious um, for both of you. Uh, has this ability to echolocate and this skill, has it made like a big difference in your lives within your home? Because I know like blind individuals kind of they, they memory map a lot of things. You know, they, they know they know environments very well. Um, do you feel like that additional skill has made a big difference for you? even in the most familiar of environments? I think for me, like at the office, it's bit, you know, in my home, I don't know, I could, uh, I could do it half asleep. I feel like <laughs> I could navigate sure. pretty well. Um, but at, at work, especially now that we only go in once a week because of COVID and all of that, but I'm, I'm still, walking down the hall, listening for the empty door that is my office or the corner I know that's coming to turn right down that other hall. Like I definitely, I'm snapping my finger as I walk along, I'm listening, even in a familiar space, it, I can go faster. Um, I know what I'm looking for. I know what I'm listening for, I guess I should say. So I can go faster and I'm confident I'm going to find it. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think the confidence is is a huge component and then speed, you know, Ben, I'll tell you what, Ben Felton's going to love to hear that he can go faster. Mm -hmm. But the important two. part from the aesthetic standpoint, why do we have to be running on autopilot? Why can't we be enjoying the aesthetic of the environment? Mm -hmm. It sounds cool to have the open door and then you hear the edge and then the wall comes back. That's why that's why the whole world likes to go sightsee. <laughs> Guess well, what? It changes everything. Now that the brain can image with sound, there's reasons for us to go sightsee from an auditory perspective. Mm -hmm. It's not a visual, it's not only a visual experience. I definitely feel that learning echolocation makes me like, I feel like the biggest lesson I learned was here's some tools so that you can go anywhere. Because I think traditional mobility is you're taught the routes that you're going to travel frequently. And my life, my adult life has not been routine for the most part. And there's always new places I need to go. And I maybe only need to go there one time. So I'm not going to have a mobility lesson to figure that out. Right. And so having these, that sort of extra knowledge and skill makes me feel more confident to to go out and find something I, I never been to before. And I think you hit a greater point on the head there is, you know, for as much as we would like life to be routine and regular, you know, it throws us curveballs every single day, mm -hmm. you know, even amidst all these discussions, you know, last week, uh, I don't know, maybe something fell in, in my contact or something, but my vision was compromised for several days. And, Gosh, it uh, uh, it changed it changed my four days significantly. You know, mm -hmm. I couldn't look at a computer screen. Well, geez, I spend eight hours a day normally, at least minimum, more, you know, between eight and sixteen on a computer screen, and so not being able to look at a computer screen is uh, significantly altering. Mm -hmm. You know, we get these curveballs uh, every day. We're handed different uh, different things, and it's. But he, you know, but he was he was a fast learner with screen readers, though. I got to give that's him good. an applause. I was, I was about to say, I don't think you're going to get a lot of sympathy from Brian and I right now, but yeah, but he did he did, um, he did learn the screen reader screens real quick. It was, it, but it was painful, you know. It and it wasn't even just the the computer screen; it was the light overhead. It was, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it was painful for that light to even enter my eye. My my whole house was dark, um, and at times, like I had to I had to look at the screen like through a towel. Um, to like to, to, to reduce the intensity of the mm -hmm. uh, of the brightness, you know. Is, yeah. is that, Sorry, I, I know I won't get a lot of sympathy from you guys. I get it. No, no, but it brings <laughs> up it brings up a good point because if you're in a, you're visually compromised with it, if you're under, if you're legally blind, you're low vision. We're always visually compromised, 
in 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 lighting conditions glare i was working with a guy the other day even though light is so special can still blind you mm-hmm. that right. it's not useful and then they find themselves not knowing what to do because vision is such a loud sense it sort of dominates and occupies like two-thirds of the brain mm-hmm. and so even if you're still getting crappy vision it's still consuming a larger part of your mental focus yeah i have light blue eyes and if it's too bright outside gosh it's overwhelming you know i uh, my brain is actually over overloaded and i can't function i have to close my eyes and and shield myself from this because you know uh it's overstimulating to to my brain to the point where it's just like i got to get out of it so i can so I can do anything uh, in, in, that, in that type of stressful environment from a life strategy perspective, maybe there's another sense to use mm-hmm. instead of having to stare and feel for the cup on the table or stare, see it. And then you grab it. Wouldn't it be easier to use a strategic hand scan on the tabletop? and find it than having to put yourself in that a mental strain of, of, of stare. So it's really this bigger conversation. If you want to uh, uh, go into new places, you're correct. Strong perception equals more efficient landmarking or recognition. And then you have the freedom to travel anywhere you want. Traditionally, because of the way the system is and time, most instructors fall in and most students think that the job is to prescribe landmarks and routes mm-hmm. when that's what daniel brilliantly brought into this whole conversation was hey the stronger your perception is the more efficient you can create the landmarks for yourself like you shared you didn't have the time you wanted to flow more like when i was in malawi that's exactly what i had to do i couldn't what mobility teacher am i gonna call oh guess <laughs> what i am one Oh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah. If you want a shortcut through a parking lot, you can. But yeah, right. If it you like, that's the building I'm trying to get to, and I want to get straight to it. I don't want to have to cross this street and then this street and walk down here because I only know that intersection. And yeah, yeah. And so it becomes this bigger conversation for all of us, all humans, to, of situational awareness. And within that, there's more strategic times to use different senses in other ways. Yeah. And that, that goes back to that quote, Sean. And I'll just, the last sentence of it is, being an expert is not defined by what you have in your head, but by r- rather how effectively you relate to the world around you. You know, knowing that you can cut across that parking lot and that you don't have to walk all over the streets and cross the crosswalks. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's the, 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 the creativity I think another thing I learned, and it's not necessarily related to echolocation, um, but I, I, Daniel and I got lost um, in my neighborhood. I don't know if he was lost. I was absolutely lost. And he was like, he wanted to get us lost because he wanted to teach me that you can always use the skills you have to get yourself out of being lost. And it was such a valuable lesson because I think for most of my life, I was so afraid of getting lost. Like what will, you know, if I get, that's like the worst thing. Right. But when you know, you can get unlost, it it stops becoming something you're afraid of. Sean, that's actually the title of the lesson, getting lost with students. Oh, okay. (laughs) I am very passionate about trying to shift perceptions of blindness to be more positive and part of how I do that is, you know, bring cool blind people on the podcast and talk to them about what they're doing to kind of raise the bar about, you know, our capabilities, for example. But I feel like you have this other approach of working with sighted people in a different way to get to the same goal. Yeah, because I, because I got so, I got so, I got so tired of the, the convincing Mm -hmm. of other people. And it always felt like between institutions. Now we still work with all these people. Like it's, that's never stopped. I just wanted, I needed artistically creativity 
from a life energy. I need, we needed, I needed to pivot the conversation. I wanted, there was more interesting things that were, that we're having. And, and so the relatability, no one really relates to blind people. Mm-hmm. It's a hard, I just got, I just, as party tricks, like I, we talk, look at this podcast. We've been pretty deep into that narrative. I just started finding at every party I went to, people didn't know how to relate. And then as we were, our friends started, you know, who are professional athletes started being like, well, we're getting the learning things from Brian. I was like, this has relatability to all people because who doesn't want to learn something from a professional athlete? Guess what? They're the same human principles of truth that we've been perfecting within the visually impaired and blind community. And we see so many beautiful examples of our whole population breaking new grounds every day. It happens. It's just, it's a hard thing to relate to because the dominant sense, what is most people's biggest fear? They fear losing their vision because not everyone has fully spent time thinking about that we can actually conquer man's greatest fear, the fear of darkness. We've had this the whole time. In the last 20 years, science decided to measure it. It's about time. So profession, so the shifting the relatability, this is a human thing. We're human beings first who happen to have a visual impairment. But every human being is on the journey of vision loss. We're born legally blind, and it takes a while for the eyes to develop. And then we're probably all going to die legally blind. So this is something that... the, 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 the So here's where the athletes came in. They're just, they're doing it. They already care. They're interested in the 1% or 2%. They have a highly motivated culture. They came to me first Mm. and shared that there's a need that they want to expand their level of game. Tyson Fury, the world's best boxer, practices 60% under blindfold. Why? Professional jujitsu players with 20-20 vision choose to go into competition with a blindfold, dominate. Why? Because they understand in those moments of competition that their other senses are more informative than vision. And that's what everyone got more interested in. This is not a conversation of how echolocation is not how you be a better blind person. No, echolocation is how everyone becomes a better human being. Because if everyone's complaining, I can't, I can't, where's the lights? It's not enough light. Well, you're not thinking adaptively. You're not thinking creatively. There's an opportunity because it's insulting when we're in the room and be like, what? You can't function anymore? Like how, how many times am I taking care of sighted people for complaining about their lighting conditions? <laughs> <laughs> so you're basically teaching sighted people all our tricks. How to localize <laughs> sound, how to differentiate <laughs> sound, how to <laughs> echolocate. <laughs> And, and that's it, it, and others, and that's and that's the trick. It's not we're all humans. Mm-hmm. That's a conversation. I, I, we that's that's that question. What, like, how do you do such and such? Right, that you get asked a billion times. You guys are answering that for it. Like you're you're getting rid of the mystery around that because it's not amazing. It it's not it, as amazing as everyone imagines it, it to be. It's normal. Yeah, and yeah, and it's normal. And I love. There's a great well, one of the conversations we had with um, the in uh, hockey US. He shared this idea of the hockey sense. Mm. You know, Wayne Gretzky had this yes. great ability. They called it a hockey sense. And 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 this coach who brings more young professionals in, more young, you know, amateurs into the professionals. He brought up this question because he starts hearing about this perceptual training. And he goes, wait a second, because there's a big debate in the hockey world. Are you born with the hockey sense or can it be trained? Mm. And what we're finding in the more articles and the conversations, 
you lived it i lived it it can be trained they're just using their senses in more profound ways but language is limiting and we don't have a very good vocabulary to talk about the subtleties and the nuances of what this is mm -hmm. well and right? then if you think of like any athlete and break down their senses there is not an even distribution with each athlete across all of the senses, you know? Uh, no, you know, there's some athletes, for example, that have poor vision. We know that they have poor vision because they wear glasses. Um, maybe there's athletes that have poor balance. You know, they, they, some parameter is different, and so their other parameters have to compensate. So in a way, we're in a way we like because I have a master's in special education. So we're just I'm just a special. We're, our acoustic athletics is just a special education teacher because they need individual education plans. And when I was going through school, we have a lot of labels around special education. But I love the title of the textbook. They called it exceptional learners. Mm -hmm. They don't learn in the general population, and so. That's why this is relatable because we're working in trying to create learning environments, learning scenarios. We're not plugging people into a system because Tom just, you know, shared that everyone it comes in at a different level. So we're actually having to create specific programming once the right assessments have been done. But the, the, the overarching parallels are very similar but that's what's different about it. This isn't rigid because there's, and we're even watching in the sports, the, a lot of the guys when we're working with athletes, they've been doing the same thing for so long that now they're stuck. I'm just thinking of like gymnasts and divers and like they, they're not able to, they're not possibly able to use their vision to do some right. of the crazy stuff they're doing, right? They right. must be learning another way. Sure. Just you know, like the snow plowers. Right. Yeah. Well, and and with, with with the gymnasts and divers in particular, you know, one of the senses that they have that I would say is very advanced is the sense of proprioception. You know, mm -hmm. and that's um, you know, pr proprioception can be really defined as the body's own sense of position and motion. Um you know, and that's, yeah, I would say that gymnasts, divers, they, they have a very good sense of that. And that's something that can be certainly enhanced significantly with uh, blindfolded training. You know, mm -hmm. proprioception is actually the, the sense that's probably most written about when it comes to blindfolded training um, and, and improvements. Okay. So once you've taught some of these athletes your tricks, <laughs> our tricks, <laughs> the tricks that aren't even tricks, just our ways of, of navigating the world. Do you feel like there's a difference in how they treat you when they can now do what you do? Guess what? They're able to do things that I can't do because they're professional athletes. I can't go. I don't, I'm teaching people around the world. I can't, I'm not in the gym walking on a treadmill right now. I'm present here, like leaning over my phone, probably have bad posture thinking of like, Oh, I got to stretch out here in a second. Nah, just life has organized itself. So we just create the learning environments. We know enough in how to create the experiential learning to get a person's whole reality to become questioned to then help bring them the life philosophical conversations to reconsider that maybe we as humans are built in a different way than preconceived. Hmm. Usually they treat him with a sense of awe, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and when they learn the skill, maybe it's then with like, a, it's elevated even a little bit. Um, Remember sure. like the biggest way it's my biggest, well, it, but here's why. Because we're serving them. We, we, we operate under a servant leadership model. We literally ask the athlete, how do I help you become better? What are your challenges? What are your weaknesses? And let's go. Mm -hmm. So how are they relating to it is I'm, my whole posture the entire time is approaching this from a servant 
aspect. Like I know all this. Mm-hmm. Like we look, we go live fine, but there's a need. Like the, I see needs in the world that motivate me to want to make a change. Yeah. I feel like there's a market in, I know so many of the blind youth that I work with have tried to register for some community sport programming, martial arts, whatever dance and been turned away because the teacher doesn't know how to accommodate them. And even in, in training, you know, those programs, those instructors on how, because the, sometimes the, you know, the blind person themselves doesn't know what's going to be asked of them. So it it can be hard to say, here's what I'm going to need when you don't know, you don't know yet. That's part of the creativeness of the culture. Like so much as everyone's wanting to plug in, what are the rules not to offend? Mm-hmm. It's almost better to just let the individual go in the environment and see totally what happens, is. you yes. know, yeah, rather, but- than, rather than try to put limitations. Oh, we know exactly how to deal and work with visually impaired people. You know, that that's also maybe not the best solution because then there's limitations to put on it. Yeah. And then get, and I've always loved it. I mean, it's fun watching Daniel's wisdom echo loudly through this conversation. <laughs> he he always had a value that there's a there's a player in your guys' scenario that you miss. It's the parents. Mm-hmm. The parents are the primary instructors. This was the cruel reality that I learned and why I was quick to get to get outside of the box of low expectations. Right. See, that's the social dynamic is we get put in this box of low expectations and that changes the social atmosphere. And it's hard to learn in a desert of disbelief. You don't have people rooting for you. Mm-hmm. That's why we invite sports people and have their home team, home court advantage when you got people rooting for you. So blindness just brings up a lot more insecurities and in others, which create a very hyper social environment so parents are the primary leaders and instructors because parents spend the most time with their kids and if any visually impaired person or parent is waiting for the school districts to give them enough hours to get their child to where they want to be it's it's gonna be a tough road life life's momentum the spirit of life should not be waiting for a scheduled hour for someone else to happen it goes on a walk right so one of my favorite things to do with parents is anytime a parent goes oh look at this they should click Mm, right because that's how their child is going to perceive the grand canyon Uh, yeah and they just don't do it right then it turns into oh we need to describe it all for the child i I can't tell you i've worked with too many students who understand the concept of a stop sign but when they actually physically touch it and talk about it they have no idea what they're experiencing right because it's not their fault they just haven't had the overlap of oh this is what this feels like with this idea in this context. Yeah, they know that someone has stopped a million times at these things called a stop sign. <laughs> yeah, they didn't know that. They didn't know that with their cane, it sits about eight inches in the grass, probably by a corner, yeah. and you know have some holes in the pole, and at the top you can actually reach your cane and feel. Oh my gosh, you can actually feel the angles of the stop sign. Mm-hmm. So. There's just a lot of movement is the thing that most of our, if we're, if we want to start strong with blind beginnings, movement is the most important thing. Okay. Oh my gosh. I could talk to you guys forever, but we do need to wrap up. So if people want more information about acoustic athletics, where can they find you? Do you have a website? Oh, they can find us on your podcast. And that's- <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, or at our website, acousticathletics.com. Awesome. Awesome. Yep. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us today. This has been fantastic. I've so enjoyed connecting with you again, Brian, and getting to know you better, Tom. 
Thank you. Yeah, Sean, this has been fantastic. Really, uh, really appreciate your time. And this was a great conversation on our end as well. Thank you. And, and, and thank you for the space and open mindedness and heart for everyone you've been helping out for all these years and to help create space for this conversation. It's sort of it's uh, the posture is meant to challenge, but everybody's been doing this for a long time. It's this knowledge and everything we've talked about has just been living in the collective consciousness blind spot. Mm-hmm. It's time to wake up and pay attention and activate. Yes. Awesome. Thank you for that. You've been listening to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. If you have a question, a comment, a future topic request, please send an email to limitless at blindbeginnings.ca. Please share our podcast with a friend, leave us a rating, a review, and join us next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Music for this podcast is composed by Sean Bishop and Clement Chow. Production and audio editing by Rob Minot. For more information about Blind Beginnings and the work it does to support children and youth who are blind and partially sighted, along with their families, visit us on the web at www.blindbeginnings.ca. And also remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.